0: are tackling some of the world's biggest social challenges so that you can learn from those who have been there before, helping you in your decision making and action taking. The link between malnutrition and poverty might be an obvious one, but the link between malnutrition and business is perhaps less so. During this conversation, we're going to deep dive into both of these topics. As the world braces for some of the most extreme food shortages seen in generations, we are going to talk hunger and malnutrition and why everyone everywhere should be sitting up and engaging on this deeply sad topic. Today, I'm joined by two of the world's experts on childhood development and nutrition. Manisa Intekim leads the Early Childhood Development East and Southern Africa Initiative at the Conrad N. Hilton Foundation. Previously, she served as a regional advisor for UNICES Eastern and Southern Africa regional offices, overseeing the early childhood development programs. Manisa has a wealth of experience in her CV. She's worked also for the Children's Investment Fund Foundation, for the Open Society Foundations, Amnesty International, and the list goes on. Alongside Manisa, I'm also joined by Dr. Alec Ranjan. He is the Director of Programs and Investments for The Power of Nutrition. Alec is a medical doctor with a postgraduate degree in community medicine. Prior to The Power of Nutrition, he led the nutrition program at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation for India, Bangladesh, Indonesia, and South Asia. Alec also worked for the UNICEF and led nutrition programs in India. So if you think malnutrition is not a business issue, think again and take a listen. Alec, Maniza,
1: welcome.
2: Thank you. Good morning to you. Great to be here.
1: Hi, Manisa. Um, hi, Katie. Thank you so much for inviting us on this.
0: Oh, it's great to have you both here. And I wanted to open our conversation today to ask you about what brings you to want to talk with our Business Fights Poverty podcast community.
2: Why are you here today? Well, thanks, Katie. I can start off. So, um, my name is Manisa Intekam, and I work for the Conrad N. Hilton Foundation, which is a private, non-for-profit philanthropic foundation that was started by Conrad Hilton, the, the famous hotel entrepreneur. And for about 11 years or so, the foundation's been supporting work on early childhood development, uh, which includes lots of important inputs like nutrition, and so. We're really, I'm really delighted to be here today to talk about the role of business um, and the private sector in uh, supporting and addressing some of the work that we lead on early childhood development, um, which also includes uh, nutrition. I've been at the foundation for about a year now. Prior to that, I worked for UNICEF in many different countries. So, again, just um, really excited to be back into a conversation about how different uh, stakeholders can um, support this work. Uh,
1: to get children on the right track.
2: Thanks. Oh, cool. And Alec, what about yourself?
1: Hi, um, I'm Alec Ranjan. I'm the Director of Programs and Investments at the Power of Nutrition. Um, it's a few, few inputs about the Power of Nutrition, and I'll then share something about me as well, how I landed up here. Power of Nutrition is a kind of a platform which has which creates partnerships, mainly across private sector and different funders, as well as implementing partners. We help raise more funds for nutrition from various sectors. And coming to the business-wise poverty platform, uh, I think it's a brilliant platform for us to connect with because we see it as a community that aligns with our own business for good ethos. And about me, I'm a medical doctor. Uh, Over the last two decades, I've been working in the area of public health and nutrition. What I have realized in the last two decades is the fact that we need to work across multiple deprivations that our most vulnerable population and communities go through. And working in silos would not give us long-term sustainable impact. And I think that's where the business fights poverty's belief in the power of business to help improve the lives, livelihood, and the learning opportunities really resonates pretty well with our at the power of nutrition's vision, where we feel that there needs to be a world where every child has a nutrition to achieve their full potential. So that's how I think we are very aligned in the vision.
0: Oh, well, we're delighted to have you both here. It's really important. And leading on from that, I was wondering whether, Alec, you might share with us your insights on why malnutrition is still such an issue right now.
1: Thanks, Katie, for that question. I would start with uh, suggesting an equation, which is number 45 is not equal to one. And what I mean by that is malnutrition contributes as an underlying factor to almost 45% of under five kids mortality in the world. It's such a massive contributor to those deaths. But if you look at the amount of funding that goes for addressing undernutrition in the ODA, it is less than one So that's one big message I would like to bring here. 45 is the contribution that 45% that uh, undernutrition contributes to under five mortality, but the funding for addressing undernutrition is less than 1%. Now, what is happening right now is the UN Secretary General has really warned about the multiple famines that are hitting this year and later this year and in 2023. And um, the world is kind of sleepwalking into this crisis at this point. There's a whole tsunami of malnutrition that's coming. Various factors has kind of contributed towards this. If you look at the whole climate change that's impacting the cost of living crisis, the conflict, uh, Ukraine conflict that we are seeing, as well as the exacerbations that happened because of COVID. It's kind of a perfect storm coming together. And if I can just share a few numbers, um, it's every 60 seconds that we are talking now, one child is becoming severe malnourished. Globally, almost 12 times the population of UK is going to bed hungry every night. And if you look at what is the population which is on the edge of famine, it's almost 50 million people across 45 countries are at that stage at this point of time. We talked about the COVID, the virus, and and everything. I feel right now, severe acute malnutrition, which is the worst form of malnutrition that we see, is kind of increasing at such a rapid pace that it is threatening around 1.7 million people in East Africa at this point of time. So All said and done, I think malnutrition is pretty critical and important to be addressed right now. And we at the Power of Nutrition have launched our first ever public appeal for that, where we are working with private sectors and foundations uh, on this appeal, building upon the 15 investments that we already have in various countries in Africa and Asia, where every pound that is contributed gets matched by a dollar. And we double the impact to address the malnutrition at this point of time.
0: Goodness, those are really frightening statistics that you shared with us. And, Maniza, I wondered whether I could bring you in. It's probably a really obvious question, but I was wondering if you could spell out for us the links between poverty and nutrition.
2: Yes, of course. Thank you. And such a bleak picture that Alouk has uh, painted for us, corroborated by many others. So, I don't think it is an obvious question, actually. Um, For people to have what we call adequate nutrition, there's a couple of things that need to be in place. So they have to have the right kind of diet. They have to, you know, engage in certain practices that are are really key. And they also have to have access to particular services all at the right time. So unpacking that a bit, that means that for right diets, what we mean is from the time mothers are pregnant, they obviously have to have access to really good, healthy, nutritious food because well-nourished mums, Surprise, surprise, give birth to well nourished babies. And that's well nourished in terms of not just their size they are when they're born, but also it's so important if we think about their brain and their brain development um, in utero. And then once the baby is born, of course, their mothers, if the children are to be well nourished, they exclusively breastfeed. And then from six months and onwards, certain food is introduced at the right time. And some of the food that needs to be introduced, really nutritious food like vegetables and fruits and and foods high in protein like eggs and fish and meat you know they're extremely costly so if you're a low-income family it's going to be very difficult for you to be able to afford such nutritious food and pulling back to um, a point that Alec was making it uh, to the previous question we were so surprised both of us were in a meeting last week um, at Save the Children who the power of nutrition support and, and we support as well through our partnership with the power power of nutrition that recent research they've got from Malawi shows that the cost of a nutritious diet there has increased by 25% this year so imagine a family's used to paying you know let's say the equivalent of a dollar for a meal now they're paying a dollar 25 that's really significant if you're in a low income country so having access to that kind of food um, is really challenging at the moment and then i mentioned practices so Uh, You know, making sure that you have really hygienic practices as you prepare food so you can wash your hands with soap. Having access to clean water is obviously very vital. And and many poor families and poor societies do not have access to clean water. And then finally, I mentioned access to services. So being able to take your child to the doctor when they're sick and you're sure there's going to be medicine in the clinics and the children are going to be able to take a full course of their medicine. You're going to be able to have your kids vaccinated at the right times and be able to monitor if they're growing well and developing well and take action if they're not. You know, all of that comes at quite a, quite a cost. And if you have limited resources, your access to all of that is severely constrained. Um, and I just want to end on one point, which is, you know, this vicious cycle that starts. So you're in poverty, you're not able to provide for yourself or your children. They're not very well nourished, which makes makes it very difficult for them to start school and do well in school and get the skills they need to then get quality employment that enables them to create the incomes that can, you know, create a a, a virtuous cycle for their family. So you see, it's just a vicious cycle, and when you're in poverty, it, it's really hard to break
1: to break out of that.
0: You paint a very vivid picture there. Look, I was wondering, do you want to add anything to that?
1: I, I think Manisa has really. Uh, describe the whole link between poverty and nutrition so nicely what i'll try to add on top of this is another formula which is last time i said 45 is not equal to one my favorite formula on this is two is equal to 17 what i mean by that is sdg2 under the sustainable development goals within which nutrition uh, subsides which is like uh, sdg2 talks about Ending hunger, achieving food security and improved nutrition, and promote the sustainable agriculture. This is SDG two. What happens is that SDG two has the potential of helping achieve and contribute towards all the other seventeen SDGs, as well as various SDGs contribute towards achieving better nutrition. Some examples I'll just share over here. If you look at what are the different systems that helps us improve the nutritional status and how does it link to the whole poverty component, health systems. We know that health system works on immunization, on family planning and urban health, uh, universal health coverage. When we look at these components, a better immunized child has better immunity and that child uh, would fall less ill, would be, has less prone to become undernourished. If you look at family planning practices, it helps uh, reduce the whole burden, more gap in terms of the pregnancies and deliveries, better uh, maternal nutrition status and better child's nutrition. If you look at Other systems, for example, food systems, if our food systems and the linkage between nutrition and agriculture is better, then we are able to have more diverse agriculture products and it's what then goes to the plate. If you look at the social protection system, cash transfer or the social safety net programs like public distribution system mechanisms and all, all these helps the vulnerable communities and households to have better. And more uh, ability to have more diverse food and um, on their plate at the household level. Washed system. If you look at the whole water and sanitation, more hygienic water and sanitation, it leads to less infections, better gut flora, better absorption, less malnourished children. Similarly, linking with education, linking with gender. I, I mean, the uh, it's it's phenomenal in terms of how a better nourished. Mother and child can help towards a better or achieving all the other SDGs and vice versa. So that's just an additional point to what Muzer mentioned.
0: And it's certainly a personal bugbear of mine. Like you know, the the cross impact nature of social environmental issues and the knock on effects to to one another is so important to take as a whole. And it's it's quite challenging when you get sort of stuck into one particular issue. And and therefore, I was wondering whether. Clearly, we've got a bunch of really kind of emerging big challenges, whether climate change, conflict, recovery from COVID, you know, they they weren't they weren't part of the SDG plan when they got um initially sort of mapped out. How do you feel that those, particularly those emerging issues, are affecting the work that you're doing and malnutrition?
1: So I don't think that. It's all doom and gloom in terms of when we look at the nutrition situation. If you just go back 20 years, every third child less than five years was stunted. What do we mean by that? These children, children were suffering from chronic malnutrition. Now, if we come to pre-COVID era, this number had fallen from one in every third child to one in every fifth child. So that's a massive progress when you look at the global level what we had been able to achieve from nutrition situation. So just wanted to put that in context. The world knows what can be done and how things can be addressed. What has happened here, and that's my third formula comes here, is four C's, which is the COVID, climate, conflict, and the cost of living. When you look at this, what is what these four are doing, they're kind of reversing the whole progress that had been made in addressing nutritional situation over the last so many years what climate has done is i'll give you an example if you look at the somalia what is we are seeing in the east africa right now four back to back fairly failed rainy seasons in somalia and on top of that this is what this led to is the biggest drought in the last 40 years and then now what this is being exacerbated by is the whole cost of living which is mainly driven by the global inflation and especially countries in africa are really highly dependent for both imports of grains, the food, as well as the fertilizer and the fuel. So that's where you see the link between the climate and what the conflict has done. Uh, The other two Cs, I would say, is uh, the cost of living, which is a direct impact of the whole conflict situation at a great extent, as well as if you look at the uh, COVID situation, because what happened during COVID is we already had increase in the number of children who were severe acute malnourished during that phase, and now the remaining four C's are kind of exacerbated this whole situation. So we are kind of entering into a perfect storm for malnutrition right now.
0: And I want to talk about what we should do about it in a minute, but Manisa, I was wondering whether you wanted to add anything to what you're saying from the work you're doing.
2: Yes, I did. I mean, I think that Alouk has really explained so clearly um, the four C's and the impact, but there's one thing I want to underline in what he said, which is just the inequalities that this has exacerbated. So You know, there are some countries recovering from the COVID-19 pandemic in a way that others are not having the same chance. So hunger, food insecurity, all forms of malnutrition are just getting worse and leading to some of the most catastrophic levels of severe malnutrition that we've seen in children under five in quite a long time. According to UNICEF, there are about 15 countries, including those countries that Haluk has mentioned in the Sahel, the Horn of Africa. Countries are fl- affected by conflicts like Yemen, where at least 40 million children are nutrition insecure. So it means they're not getting the, the minimum that they need from their diet. And a further 21 million are food insecure, which means they're just not getting access to the food they need. And of course, the burden is heaviest felt in those countries I mentioned. And in a region, it's Africa that's really bearing the brunt of this with, you know, one in five uh, people in Africa are facing hunger. Compared to 9% in Asia, just under 9% in Latin America and the Caribbean, just under 6% in, in Oceania, and about 2.5% in North America and Europe. And all of this is just getting worse and worse, and we're seeing the inequities exacerbated. So it really is to say that we need to take, you know, really, we're coming on to that, I know, really immediate action and to really prioritize the work around um addressing this nutrition crisis uh, with such a sense of urgency like we've we, we haven't currently got so i just really wanted to underline how unfair and unequal the situation is at the moment and now we will talk about that who should get involved why
0: should they get involved before moving on to what so so why should people who are perhaps within businesses take action we we historically think of this being a sort of an ngo Rattling bucket and some sort of governments and supranational support, not necessarily a busy business issue. Manisa, can I ask you first, like, why, from a business perspective, should companies or decision makers within companies start thinking about malnutrition as an issue that they need to tackle?
2: I'm really delighted you've asked that question, Katie, because I, I didn't mention before, but my very first job actually out of university was working for the CBI, which is as I'm sure many of your members know, the UK's largest employer federation. And what I learned from working with the CBI and what I've learned now working um, for the Hilton Foundation, founded by an entrepreneur, is that what business leaders know is that they are key stakeholders in society and they have a really important role to play in shaping um, the world they're part of and the communities that they're also part of. And you started off with a really good point, which is, well, everyone thinks this is charity, this is NGO work, this is philanthropic work, this is the UN's work. But that's actually not true. It's not just a charity issue. It's a a matter of business survival. So businesses need skilled human capital um, to grow, to be competitive and to be productive. And the basis of a good business is human capital. And we know that human capital is developed in the very early stages of life. So about 80% of the human brain is developed by the age of three, 90% by the age of five, meaning that before you even enter a classroom, you know, you're well on the way to developing the skills that businesses need, problem solving, uh, team working, uh, communication. And, And so that's critical for business growth and survival. So this really is a core business issue. If a significant proportion Um, of the population within which you hire is poorly nourished and not have the chance to be developmentally on track, that's really critical for your business. And I'll end with a common refrain I often heard um, from business when I worked in, in the UK, and also I did a stint supporting the Rwandese Private Sector Federation as well. And they say the same things, which is they recruit for attitude and they train for skills. And if your employees have missed out on some vital skills development in their early years, like reading and writing, for example, and working in a team, then that's really a problem for you as an employer because you inherit these employees and then you've got to invest in building up these basic skills as well as trying to train your workforces um, to deliver whatever is it is that the business and the product that you're aiming to deliver. So I'd say that this is a critical issue for business. If they want to be sure of their future and and they want to be sure, of having the skills they need and, you know, plugging some of those critical skills gaps, they really want to invest and get involved in this issue as well.
0: Thank you. That's laid it out fair and square for us. But Alec, I just wanted to check in with you. What have we missed from your perspective? Why should businesses really engage with this issue?
1: Nothing must missed over here, I would say. I think Maniza has really uh, described the whole link between uh, why business should take action on nutrition and poverty alleviation. Just to add on top of what she's saying with some numbers, we did a seminal research this year. It was published in Lancet. It's called the cost of stunting research, where what it showed is that the huge cost of malnutrition to economies in the low and middle income countries, and the number is that we lose every year more than a quarter of a trillion dollars in these low middle income countries because of stunting, which is a kind of a chronic malnutrition. And just to give some numbers to different aspects that we lose out because of nutrition, poor nutrition is across some, some studies says that across Africa and Asia, almost 11% of the GDP is lost because of malnutrition. In terms of schooling, Manisha mentioned about how important it is from the brain development and, uh, and learning perspective, almost a loss of one year of education is what stunting contributes towards every year. It, it reduces the health, the immunity of the person. They became The child is more vulnerable to infections and all. And even in terms of the earning, a stunted child as an adult worker, studies find out that they lose up to 20% of their income compared to a non-stunted colleague. I think all these adds up if you look at from the business perspective, from the economy perspective, and from the uh, development perspective.
0: Goodness, those stats are pretty striking. And for anybody listening, I'll put uh, links to those uh, pieces of research into the words that sit alongside the podcast. So what should we do about it? What can businesses
2: do to address this issue? I think there are three things that businesses can do here. The first is to really use their voices to advocate for this area. We need more investment in nutrition and in early childhood development from government, from donors, from society. We really have to see that this is an urgent investment to make and it has to be prioritized. There's there's no country I've worked in or lived in or worked with where business hasn't had a significant influence. If they call for things, they get noticed. Sometimes they get done. You know, So business shouldn't be afraid, I think, to speak up on this issue because they've got a lot of value to add. The second thing I think I would say is, you know, some of our businesses are at the innovative end. They're at the cutting edge of everything. And if they can just share their technical know-how and innovations in order to help think through how we address some of the critical needs with this, this nutrition crisis we're currently facing. So how do we get vital um supplies out in the most efficient and effective way? How do we monitor what we're doing? How do we make sure we reach those most likely always to be left out and left behind? You know, how can how can business share their technical know-how on this? And the final thing is that I think businesses can also invest in this area. They can invest in organizations like the Power of Nutrition and UNICEF. They can invest in campaigns like the ones that Alec has just mentioned and initiatives that are all working day in, day out to address the global nutrition crisis. I think there are many INGOs, UN agencies, others doing great work in this area, and and businesses, um, you know, shouldn't be afraid to support um, and join in in these efforts too.
0: Oh no, thank you. So anybody listening, you have been told. Alec, what about yourself? Anything you'd like to add to that?
1: Um, So it it takes me back to My working days at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, where I was before I joined the power of nutrition, and there was a proverb proverb which was ingrained on the walls in in the Gates office in Seattle. It said, alone, you can go faster, but together you can go further. And this is an African proverb. I've seen play out again and again across various geographies, various partnerships that we have seen, even at the power of nutrition, what we do is bring the private sector bilaterals and different funders and work with the government. So most of the places would see that is this kind of a public-private partnership is really interesting for donor governments and different philanthropies because it helps them unlock their resources and private sector and businesses coming in and contributing with the expertise, with the investments and different opportunities. It unlocks and leverages public sector financing for nutrition in a big way. Also, I think uh, there is this whole thing that, um, Maniza mentioned about the cap- capacities, the capabilities and expertise that are there across private sector and public sector actors. I think it, it instead of working in silos or brought together, it has more synergistic effect when they work together. I'll give you an example. At Gates Foundation, we were working on the large-scale food fortification in a big way in India, and it took all the players, like for the government to put the right standards in place, to have the guidelines. For the industry to then work on the fortification of the different staples, whether it's the oil manufacturers or whether it's the rice manufacturers. So everyone came together, the premix industry, which provides the fortificants. And then for the platform that the government had, which was through the midday meal in the school program or through the public distribution system to reach the most vulnerable communities. So these are the platforms through which these fortified products are being provided to 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 the base of the pyramids in a big way. So what this gives us is a very good win-win situation where government would not have been able to do that without industry stepping up and being a part of that whole ecosystem which is trying, driving this whole change towards addressing the micronutrient deficiencies. So just just wanted to share that example in line to what Manisha was mentioning.
0: Thank you. And, and as you guys were talking, I was thinking about the fine line that business treads when they're trying to influence and work with governments. And you guys obviously sit in this kind of space where you're looking across a lot of sectors you need that government engagement how would you recommend to potentially somebody who's working in a business to navigate those sensitivities around trying to engage and influence and 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 as you say advocate laminita how do you how would you what would be your advice to to somebody who's trying to figure that out
2: i mean i'd say i'd say think about two things really the the first is to frame the business intervention in a way that really legitimately makes sense to the work that the businesses do, and the communities they're in. And by that, I mean, you know, as I said, you know, the start of one of my other answers to one of the other questions, businesses need skilled people, it's not right that their workforce comes really unprepared for the work that they need to do. So, businesses need skilled people they need healthy people who are not malnourished and therefore sick all the time and having to be absent from work because of their illnesses and they need a society that's more equitable because it's safer and then they're able to thrive and do well for themselves as well so I think the first thing is if business can really frame this as a core business need and as part of a business argument I don't think anyone can then you know start to question, why businesses might get involved in this issue, why, why they might be speaking up on this issue and why they might be engaged. It really is a business issue and they have to frame it that way. And the second thing is, you know, partner with the right organizations. There are many in this space who are able to support and willing to, to partner with businesses to think about how to take this on, as, as Alex said, together. And I think uh, working with organizations that have a really great track record of partnering um, with business like Power of Nutrition and others, you know, partnering with them really can can support business to do what they need to do in this space. So I'd say don't be afraid because this is a core business issue. You have every right to speak up on it and you've got every right to partner with others on this as well.
1: Eloquently
0: put there. Thank you very much. Alec, do you have anything to add? I mean, that. Pretty well framed there, but but just in case.
1: Just two things to kind of focus on very much in line to what Maniza was mentioning is when businesses help things around development like nutrition and all, I would suggest to focus on a few components uh, which I've seen uh, being missed out um, multiple times in multiple uh, geographies is that it should be approached in a way which is helping things at scale It is helping things in a sustainable manner, and it is helping things improve through the systems approach as as much as possible. Because we don't want to create mechanisms where there are pilots being done, and then those cannot be sustained once the funding for those are dying out. Uh, Second thing to add is there could be, in development, work around more evidence creation. There could be work around working on policies, and there could be work on real implementation. I would suggest that any business looking at any change in the area of nutrition or any development area, looking at this whole continuum and where does their expertise fit, whether it's around the evidence creation aspect, whether it's around the policy aspect or in terms of the implementation. And I think whichever industry we take, for example, if someone is working in the area of safe water or in the area of sanitation or in the area of immunization or in the area of health products. All of these do contribute to the better learning, do contribute to the better nutritional outcome. Are they telling that narrative about what they're contributing, what their work is contributing towards the nutritional outcome? Is something uh, might be worthwhile thinking a bit more about.
0: Thank you. You two are like the power people in this topic, and it's so, so humbling to spend some time with you. And I'm really, therefore, sad that the next question is my final question for this conversation. I feel like we're just scratching the surface. And that anybody listening will be in a similar situation, which is like, please, can we find out how to get in touch with you guys and, and find out more? Which again, I will put links into the words that sit alongside. But that final question is, what next? I feel like you guys are super busy and really, really focused. But I was just wondering whether you could take us through or like, what are your priorities and your upcoming works like? look, would you mind going first?
1: Sure. Thanks Katie for that question. For us, it remains two things, more money for nutrition and more nutrition for the money. So that's the mantra that we are working on. So two big priorities for us right now is, as I mentioned earlier, is this whole malnutrition crisis appeal to contribute towards the work that we with our various implementing partners uh, want to undertake to address this whole tsunami of malnutrition that's coming through. So that is a biggest priority for us right now to ring the bell on the crisis and raise awareness of its severity, but also to kind of raise the vital funds needed for for implementing these programs. That's number one. Number two is we are now in our seventh year of programming and we have now 20 programs which will be up and running uh, by next month. And this is across 10 implementing partners. So we are at a stage where we are learned a lot from our past investments and now we are focusing more and more on repeat investments in geographies where we have had successful program and where there is a massive need and requirement in country so for example we are in a pipeline working on uh, three repeat investments in geographies like drc congo uh, rwanda and indonesia for 2023 so that's big And uh, also, uh, and as as Manisha is here, so we, and she mentioned about our Malawi partnership. So it's partnership between Hilton Foundation as uh, FCDO, as well as uh, implemented by Save the Children and Give Directly as our implementing partners. So when we look at this investment and Manisha mentioned about the meeting that we had last week, where we kind of were going through different aspects of this program. Uh, it is giving us an opportunity to kind of replicate this model of how we all can work together to bring nutrition, early childhood development and other sectors together to address the uh, nutrition of our mother and child. And, and we want to see if we can replicate this model also into different geographies. And Mozambique is one place where we are uh, thinking about uh, exploring that partnership.
0: Oh All the very best with all of that uh Maniza that leaves you to close us out today what's what's on your horizon
2: thanks so much actually a lot of what we spoke about today is on my horizon so one of the core bits of our work is you know what can we do to really support caregivers in how they raise their children and how they interact with their children so part of that has been about how we address this issue of adequate nutrition how do we make sure you know children Feel loved and cared for, and they're played with and they're stimulated and they're kept healthy. You know, all the things that we know children need to keep on track. And understanding that at the heart of that, we really need to support and work with caregivers. So, their own mental health and well being. And there are some caregivers of real concern to us, really, um, including, you know, adolescent mothers. The three countries I work in Kenya, Tanzania, and, and Mozambique, they're the three countries we support. We've seen an explosion in adolescence and teen pregnancy during COVID. So really thinking through how we can support those mothers it is quite a priority for us. And aside from that, and aside from Alec keeping me busy in our discussions about how we might do some more work together in Mozambique, I'm also going to be looking and, and continuing to look at, you know, what's our role to try and support system strengthening? Alec mentioned before this need for sustainability. And for us at the heart of that is making sure that the systems that young parents and parents and children come into contact with the health system education system the social welfare system is really geared and set up to support them at whatever point they contact the system they have contact with the system and finally it's also about you know what could be our role in building a movement around this agenda and around young children and and issues like nutrition and that's why talking uh, being having the chance to talk to you today and reach out to your members today is so important because I do think the private sector is critical in building um, building that movement as well. Um, And finally, it's to say that one of the things that's really, I think, become so apparent over the many years I've been working in this space is the need to work with a lot more local partners. And and that's why, again, I think businesses are fantastic because they are in the communities. They often reach, you know, parts of, of the world that many of us can't. You just think about that uh, uh, Coca-Cola that you see everywhere in the world you always wonder how on earth has Coke got out this far but that's because businesses really are engaged with their communities in a way that many others um, aren't so yeah really thinking about what we can do to help build a movement for young children so that they can all be um, you know on track and, and achieve what they can all set out to achieve.
0: Thank you and on those important messages I'm gonna wrap off our conversation today. Maniza and Alec, thank you very, very much for sharing your time and your wisdom with us. And for anybody who wants to find out more, I will make sure that those links do sit in the words that are alongside the podcast. Alec, Moniza, thank you.
2: Thank you. Thank
1: you, Katie.
0: And if you like what you've heard today, please do rate and subscribe to us. I would also love to hear your feedback. So please do drop me a line at any time. I'm Katie at businessfightspoverty.org. Many thanks. Brought to you by Business
2: Fights Poverty.